The Football Show on Off The Ball With Sky Watch Premier League, Women's Super League, EFL, Scottish Premiership and much more Live on Sky Sports I'm prepared to end it if I can well, do, it then. do it then What about your start to the game? I was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> Why should there be an honest answer be a mistake? How can a modern day manager not have a mobile phone? Why should he? Now then you're welcome along to The Football Show So later on Andrew Mangan from Ars Blog is going to talk to us about Arsenal and their rise and rise this season under Mikel Arteta. First though, PSG. They suffered a 3-0 defeat to Monaco on Sunday night. There is talk of dressing room strife. There is naturally a manager under big pressure. Squad locks, uh, any balance or cohesion. Fans, frankly, seem to hate the team. So not much is going right. For more, we're joined by Jonathan Johnson, French-based correspondent for CBS. Jonathan, great to have you on. You're very welcome. Hey there, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start with the specifics of the defeat to Monaco. 3-0 defeat, their heaviest defeat of the campaign, nobody will be shocked to hear. Now, they are still 12 points clear in Ligue 1 because that's how things tend to work. Unacceptable, a sporting shame was how Mauricio Pochettino put it. They have now lost four of six PSG with this defeat to Monaco. Explain the performance. It would suggest, given their dominance in this league, a team not trying very hard. Yeah, uh, you're right. You know they've pretty much down tools since the since the Champions League defeats against Real Madrid. Uh, you know, unfortunately, those kind of implosions generally tend to bring out the worst in the PSG squad. I'd say this season more than any other. Uh, you know, we kind of could see it coming before it actually happened. Uh, obviously, it was still a surprise the way that it, it did come about in Madrid. But, uh, you know, PSG haven't been playing particularly well all season. Uh, you know, you can probably count their most convincing performances on one hand. Uh, and, you know, I think really when you've got a, a, a talismanic player like Kylian Mbappe, uh, you know, basically papering over many big gaping cracks uh, in the squad, uh, as he had been doing for the most part of the campaign, it's unsurprising really that, uh, you know, PSG's season is, is unravelling the way it has because it was pretty flimsy uh, to start with. You know, there wasn't too much uh, holding it together. There is much talk of an unhappy dressing room. For instance, RMC Sport are reporting two camps uh, materialised inside the squad. We have on one hand the South American Spanish speakers, that cohort, and on the other hand we have the French speakers and they don't much like each other right now. What are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of what we hear in and around the club tallies with what's being reported at the moment. Um, you know, I think that some some examples are perhaps being blown a little bit out of context, but this uh, this particular information, you know, is is quite close to the money. You know, there is a divide. Uh, you know, there are certain factions within the dressing room. It's not something new. It's something that PSG have been. Uh, I would say battling with, but it's not like that much has been done to address it in the last couple of years. Uh, it's basically something that's been allowed to fester, grow, uh, and now it's you know pretty much out of control. Certainly out of control um, under the current ownership model, uh, which is why you know people are clamouring in Paris for for changes as soon as possible. Everyone is pretty much uh, you know certain that Mauricio Pochettino and Leonardo will both be leaving the club uh, between now and the end of the season. So obviously that. 
begs the question, which direction PSG are going to go in uh, in the future? Is uh, Are they going to bring somebody in who can perhaps look to salvage that, look to, uh, you know, try and get both parties to, uh, you know, to sort of come together for the greater good? Or uh, is there going to be some sort of purge on one side or the other? I mean, obviously, there could be natural um, departures dictated by contract expirations. You know, you've got Mbappe's contract situation, which is still dragging on. Uh, you've got Angel Di Maria as well, who is highly unlikely to be handed a contract extension now, despite the fact that he has been a, a very good servant for PSG since they brought him in from Manchester United. So there's a potential for, for a lot of change, and, and that's not just on the pitch, but also off it. It's funny, you know, when I put that RMC report to you about the Spanish speakers versus the French speakers, I thought that you would shoot it down and say, no, it's not true. That's too childish and too basic and it's a media story. And yet here we are. If you speak Spanish, you're in our group. You speak French, you're in our group. And we don't like the other lot. And this is how, I don't know, a bunch of children might behave on the first day of school. I mean, one thing that I would say is I don't think it's as clear cut as that because there are certain people who uh, can sort of transition between the two groups because obviously you've got Hakimi who can speak Spanish and can uh, communicate with uh, you know that, that South American contingent uh, as well as the fact that you've got Marquinhos who you know, sort of by birth is part of that South American contingent, but also can relate to the French side. He speaks very good French, sort of unlike many of the other foreign players uh, within the squad. So there are certain, uh, you know, sort of elements of the two groups who are kind of a bit more integrated with the others uh, than, than perhaps some of their other teammates. But, uh, you know, all you have to do really is, is follow some of the PSG players uh, on social media and you will see that there is very clearly, uh, you know, a group who spend a lot of time with each other away from the pitch. Uh, you know, and a lot of those guys, whether they're playing uh, or in the team regularly or not, uh, you know, are often, uh, you know, sort of heavily featuring, uh, you know, in, in the social experiences uh, of many of these players. Uh, and, you know, and I think... More than anything, it's not so much the fact that sort of the Spanish speakers or the, the South American influence players want to spend time together or enjoy spending a lot of their time together. Uh, I think it's the fact that there is an element of unprofessionalism, not uh, not very much your hard work ethic um, that a number of players within that group are, are guilty of. I mean, let's take Mario Riccardi for, uh, as an example because he's somebody who doesn't play or hasn't played very much for PSG uh, over the course of this season has been in pretty poor form even when he has been on the pitch. I mean, I know he scored a few last minute winners, but aside from that, he's not really contributed much on the pitch. And, you know, he was allowed to turn, uh, you know, his private life into you know, basically club business a few months ago when, uh, you know, although the rumours about him and Wanda Riccardi came out, you know, he was basically missing training uh, because he was, uh, you know, jetting off to to, to another country uh, in order to try and win her back or to convince her not to, uh, you know, not to, to break up their marriage. That kind of thing makes PSG an absolute laughingstock. Obviously, Champions League capitulations like the one against Real Madrid don't help. But, you know, when you've got a player who's, you know, in the spotlight as much as somebody like Nicardi because of uh, his private personal life, uh, everything that's gone on before and and who his uh, partner and also agent is, uh, you know, he's naturally going to be under a lot more scrutiny than some of the other, you know, perhaps nicer, more friendly, you know, sort of less eager to, to hog the spotlight kind of teammates. So I think there's an element of the PSG squad that's become very frustrated at this other elements of the, the group that has become extremely unprofessional over the, the course yeah. of the last two years or so. Not least Neymar. 
Neymar, Neymar is a dreadful professional. He basically admits as much in his Amazon documentary. There's a really telling moment where it's in lockdown where there's nothing else to do and no nightclubs to visit where he actually trains hard for a while and comes back and that's when PSG reached Champions League final and he's actually in good form. And here we are a couple of years on. He doesn't look fit. So when that's your highest paid player and that's a, a kind of a cultural architect of sorts, uh, it's only natural that standards in that dressing were going to be appalling and on the floor and just to heighten PSG's sense of embarrassment L'Equipe released estimates of the salaries of the Ligue top earners now we all knew it would be PSG dominated but what's just so embarrassing here for the club is that the top 14 spots are all PSG you have to go to number 15 before you get a non-PSG salary at top of the pile is Neymar 50 million a year euro and Messi 40 million a year euro Mbappe 27 million a euro a year and on it goes so even if they have down tools at the moment they're still going to win the league it's of no consolation to anyone yeah, uh, I, I, what I would say is the the Lekip report, which is an annual thing, uh, should probably be taken with a pinch of salt, given how many clubs immediately react to say, "Oh, what's being reported by Lekip isn't isn't quite accurate," uh, and, and stuff along those lines. I mean, it's not uh, it's not completely unfounded, but uh, you know, some of the figures are you know perhaps not quite exactly what they are, and the clubs will be very quick to, to point that out. Well, that, However, that's, that doesn't that's because the clubs don't want their underpaid players banging on the door. <laughs> in fury at having opened the keep that morning. Yeah, of, of, of course. And also, I think one of the most shocking things, and, and it, it's always the case uh, when this comes out, is just how many sort of peripheral figures at PSG are paid substantially more than key players who are perhaps, you know, performing in among the league's best and most consistent performers. Uh, you know, there's some of the best performers in Liga on this season, guys like Seco Fofana at Lens. You know, he's nowhere near what a, even a, a PSG reserve, like, I don't know, a Julian Draxler is on, for example. It's, uh, you know, it's it, it's absurd, some of the, the money uh, or some of the contracts that some of these players have been roped into at PSG. And that is where... Sporting director Leonardo's position comes in because some of these players could have been moved on during his, uh, obviously this is his second spell at the club since he returned in 2019. You've had guys like Levin Kazawa, Julian Drexler, whose contracts have come to an end, yet he's preferred to extend them, even give them a pay rise, uh, basically in the hope that a club, which club, uh, you know, there's, there's not many of them, uh, would come in and actually pay transfer fees for these players when they're barely playing any football. I think. Kazawa's featured maybe nine senior minutes uh, for PSG this season, and that was in the Trophée des Champions as a substitute. Who, in their right minds, is going to pay any money to sign Kazawa, uh, you know, just to negotiate with him, knowing that they're going to come nowhere close to, to touching the salary that he's on at PSG at the moment? It's absolute madness, uh, and it's just uh, another sign of, uh, of a squad that's been really inadequately built uh, and also poorly constructed by Leonardo because. If you're really going to, you know, pay the best performers and the most important players, uh, you know, the best money, you're going to have the likes of Mbappe, Marquinhos, Verratti up there uh, above, you know, usurping guys like Neymar, uh, guys like Messi, uh, you know, guys like Jorginho Wijnaldum as well. Jonathan, just to make matters worse, the PSG fans are certainly a large quotient of is, them. Is there is there any good news coming? No. <laughs> a large quotient of them find the, their own team repulsive in many ways. So if we talk since that famous defeat at the Bernabeu, we have had a 3-0 win against 
Bordeaux and then this 3-0 defeat which we jumped off on against Monaco on Sunday evening. So the 3-0 defeat on Sunday was bad enough. If you take the 3-0 win against Bordeaux, in some ways it was worse in spite of the result because at the Parc de France, the fans just let loose. Messi was booed roundly. Neymar was booed roundly. There was a moment as the two of them stood over a free kick in the first half and the boos gathered in intensity. This is Messi and Neymar being booed and then ironic cheers when Neymar misses the target. And Neymar scores a goal, is booed loudly. Pochettino says he was saddened by what I experienced today. It affected all of us. Uh, the message consistently from fans, not just in that Bordeaux game, but of late has been we don't like this team, we don't like the direction the club is taking, we feel that whatever connection we had with PSG is gone and the club has been replaced by a soulless commercial behemoth. Yeah, I mean, they're very angry at this, I guess we could say gradual erosion, but I think the erosion has actually sped up or been sped up, partly down to, to COVID and the fact they haven't been allowed in the stadium for two years. Because let's not forget, it's not just like Bordeaux was suddenly a breaking point where they, they started giving vocal and calling out the club's leadership, uh, you know, back earlier this year before the uh, before the, the first leg of the Real Madrid clash in the Champions League, they, they did also... Uh, you know, voiced their concerns, called out certain members of the the PSG hierarchy. So there were kind of warning shots there. I do think that perhaps, because I know that these feelings have been sort of brewing for for quite a while within the fan base, that they probably could have expressed their disgust or distaste for everything that's going on uh, earlier than they did. Uh, You know, they've had ample opportunities. Certainly if, uh, you know, their grievances are, you know, um, not spit, not sticking to the traditional shirt colours, that sort of stuff that they've uh, mentioned in the past. Uh, you know, they've had plenty of opportunities to, to, to be angry and irate about that. But also at the same time, you know, when you look at what's going on at the moment, okay, Lionel Messi, you know, not fit enough to, to go and play for PSG in Monaco, but fit enough to join up with the Argentina national team. Uh, you know, and you've got, uh, you know, Neymar doing similar over the years as well. You know, are, are PSG's fans really that wrong to feel that the, yeah. that the players are laughing at them uh, and, and basically not doing their jobs properly? No, you know, I think we all feel that they're justified. So really, I think the only question with regards to the fans is why they didn't voice these concerns sooner. Because I can tell you, knowing quite a few of them very well, uh, you know, the fans have been talking about this kind of stuff for years now. It's not just months or weeks. Well, I suppose Champions League campaign still being alive meant, OK, we'll wait and see. But we don't really like the smell of this thing, but we'll wait and see. And now all the anger has been unleashed. So Neymar has been booed before numerous times by the PSG fans and has had to win them back, certainly when he threatened to leave and then stayed. For Lionel Messi, this may well have been the first time in his life that home fans have booed him. Now, that was yeah. against Bordeaux. I, I, like the holy trinity of I'm just not playing because I don't want to is the stomach bug, the back strain or the flu. He went for the flu option. And as you said, now he's pitched up for international duty. Messi will be disgusted to have been booed by his own fans. There's a chance he may have the flu for a considerable part of the remaining season. He's out of there, isn't he? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be interested to know how Messi plays it, um, how PSG play it with uh, with Messi between now and the end of the season, because obviously there's very little for the players to play for 
um, at club level. I was, in fact, I was writing something uh, about Kylian Mbappe's future uh, and how he's basically not going to have a competitive match between now and the uh, UEFA Nations League uh, in June. Uh, and that's going to be the case for a number of these players where they're basically sort of waiting to get themselves in shape, uh, you know, playing just semi-competitive games because do they really count or PSG are that far ahead at the top of Liga? Uh, you know, there's, there's definitely a debate to be had about that. Um, so I think Messi, uh, I know he's had a hard time uh, at international level in the past with the fans when they don't feel that he's necessarily the same Messi that they see, uh, you know, week in or saw week in, week out with Barcelona. But also at the same time, you also have to bear in mind what the PSG fans have been subjected to since Messi arrived. Uh, you know, they had this last summer's transfer window trumpeted as the best transfer window any club has ever had. Oh, look, we signed all these players on free transfers. It's it's absolute genius on our part, a lot of backslapping by the PSG hierarchy. And then they even had to suffer all of the Lionel Messi Ballon d'Or celebrations celebrating a, a, an individual accolade that PSG performances played little or no part in. Uh, you know, so I think that they were right uh, you know, to, to vent their disgust um, on a dissatisfaction uh, at the way that Messi's time with PSG has gone so far. Because if you look, if you crunch just the numbers solely, uh, it's not been good enough. You know, a player like Lionel Messi of his quality shouldn't be delivering just a small handful of goals in Ligue 1 uh, and living on, you know, okay, one or two decent strikes in the Champions League, but otherwise, you know, just some tap-ins. Yeah, Champions League, we've seen the best of Messi or certainly the best of his PSG Messi in that in the seven Champions League games he's played, he scored five times. That's a more than acceptable return and there was a glittering goal or two in there as well. Whereas across 18 Ligue 1 games, he's only managed two goals. Again, I don't know when he was ever booed by home fans and I don't know when he last scored two goals in 18 games. Admittedly, there are 10 assists in there as well, so there is an evolution in his role as he gets older. But still, two goals in 18 games is not really what Lionel Messi was signed for. What are you seeing in his week-to-week performances in the French League, Jonathan, as opposed to Champions League, where, as I said, he certainly weighed in with a higher percentage of goals? I think the big issue uh, that PSG have or that they've had since Messi has arrived has been a lack of identity. PSG don't have any clear identity. Part of that is on Pochettino, part of that is on the players. Uh, But also I think as well, Messi's arrival has coincided with Mbappe emerging as the absolutely undisputed talisman of this PSG side. Uh, and it brings me back to the, the the subject that we touched on earlier with Lekeep about the best paid players in the in the squad. If you're dividing up, uh, you know those wages based on contribution, Mbappe is so far ahead of everybody else, and not just in terms of his contribution on the pitch as well. Also, the way that he's conducted himself professionally in the face of what's been quite a tricky period, given given his contract's been running down, you know, his relationship with the fans hasn't always been the closest, yet they finally recognised that actually the guy who may well walk away for nothing at the end of the season has been far more committed than guys like Neymar, guys like Messi, Uh, you know, basically all the dreams that they were sold at the beginning of the season uh, after that glittering transfer window, uh, you know, have been you know, completely yeah. ridiculed. Uh, and also, you know, it's not it's not even just the guys on the pitch. You know, look at the guys off it, the guy who can't get on it, Sergio Ramos. 
you know, these are just really, really poor decisions. Uh, but yet, Pochettino had basically come into this season thinking, well, we've now signed Ramos on a free, so we're going to be playing three at the back with Marquinhos, Ramos and Kimpembe, uh, moving Hakimi to that uh, right wing back role that, that he was so used to playing to, to great effect with Inter. Uh, and we'll fill left wing back with either Bernat uh, or Nuno Mendes, who's actually been one of the highlights of, of PSG's season so far. And yet Ramos has barely even played. He's literally not been able to get himself fit enough to be on the pitch. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to absolve Pochettino of too much of the blame for PSG's identity struggles this season. But, you know, how can you be, how can you possibly form uh, an idea of what tactical identity you want your team to play with if you never even arrive at a moment where all the players are fit? But he's also not allowed to do the job as he sees it. Like he had the temerity to substitute Messi at one point this season and it became a worldwide storm because of Messi's body language and confusion over whether Messi was ignoring him or not. But either way, Pochettino for that two-week period subsequent to substituting Lionel Messi in a nothing French game got a glimpse of what it's like to get on the wrong side of these superstars. And I guarantee you against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu when the tide was starting to turn, Pochettino, based on everything we know about his managerial uh, leanings at Southampton and Spurs wanted to put on a hard-working midfielder to try and turn the tide and shore things up. And he was afraid to do it because he knew the backlash would come and it's no right to run a football club. And it was interesting, the fans in their, they released a statement, the PSG Ultra Group, and it is notable, like they call out the players, obviously, but Nasser El Khalafi, the president, not fit for his job. What they say of Pochettino is he's not the true decision maker. So... I mean, it's <laughs> no one wants to be uh, told. Well, you're you're kind of just uh, there as a bit of a placeholder. But equally, it was it was uh, an understanding that he's not been let get on with the job the way he wants to because he's been given this unbalanced squad and he's forced to pick these players. And at a certain point at European level, he's going to be completely found out. So it's hard to know where Pochettino's stock is. Uh, the fact that Manchester United are still pursuing him and nobody thinks this is a terrible idea based on on his PSG job shows that well, much like Tuchel you're kind of trying to do this job with one hand tied behind your back because the dressing room's toxic and you're forced to play certain players. So it doesn't really diminish Pochettino's standing at all. It, it does and it doesn't because also I think at the same time, you know, if you're looking at for potential evolution in Pochettino's managerial style, there hasn't been any show uh, with PSG. Uh, yes, we can debate sort of how much say he has, how much how much flexibility there is. But given how many times key players miss matches for PSG, there is a bit of uh, flexibility for him, an opportunity to you know to to experiment with different players, you know, uh, bleed in some of the youngsters from the youth academy. There's been none of that. Uh, but but isn't it isn't it true I, that Pochettino is meticulous in his preparation and it's about going through shape? and lines of running and you're here and you're there and this is how we do it and over time that starts to really have an effect I mean the occasional game or two where he can put in different players that's, that doesn't play to his uh, strengths really I mean that's, that, that, that's personnel changes but like Pochettino if you were to have a private conversation with Pochettino and you said you realise you have to take over this team and three of the players aren't going to run you know what he would say you just know what he would say this is ludicrous 
Yeah, and uh, you know, you have a point in it. It actually takes me back to an interview that he did with Lekeep before the end of last year, where he, you know, it was very thinly veiled, uh, where he basically alluded to this. Uh, you know, so his thoughts on how difficult it is to actually do his job properly, uh, you know, are have been made very clear. Uh, there is zero chance that he will be continuing as PSG coach beyond the end of uh, this season. Right, uh, and. What will be interesting is to see where he lands next and what style uh, of football he deploys uh, and whether or not, uh, you know, he's actually capable of showing, uh, you know, sort of the, the tactical evolution that you'd have expected to see from him after Spurs, but for the reasons we've discussed, mm. you know, you can't actually really expect to see from a PSG team. Uh, but, you know, I also do think that Part of Pochettino's uh, return to PSG has kind of been soured a bit because he spoke so much uh, and in great depth uh, while he was Spurs coach and afterwards about his fondness for PSG, how much he enjoyed his time there as a player, of course, and captain the team as well, uh, and how he wanted to return as coach one day. He just wasn't sure when it would be. And then when that opportunity presented itself, uh, Pochettino not only refused to move his family back to Paris. Uh, he barely made any effort to, to speak any French or understand it. So most of his press conferences are like a weird mismatch of uh, French, Spanish and English. Uh, and, you know, there was just, there, there was never any sort of clear communication. And I think it wore very thin with the fans quite quickly. Right. Uh, this sort of, oh, I was a former player, a former captain, you've know, got this emotional connection to the club when Really, it's actually turned out to be more of a superficial connection where I think all parties liked the idea more than the reality. Right, okay. There we go, Jonathan. We got through 20 minutes without a single positive. I think that's a success. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Great to have you on. And our football show coverage is brought to you by Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. Short break. We're going to be talking Arsenal next. Now then, you're very welcome back. So we are talking Arsenal. Very happy to bring in Andrew Mangan, creator of Ars Blog. Andrew, great to have you on. Hi, Joe. How are you? Well, listen, Arsenal, welcome back. It's been six years in other respects, 10 years of so-so times and dark times. And all of a sudden, Arsenal, everybody's second favourite team at the moment, playing beautiful football again as well. Not just effective, but beautiful, because frankly, Arsenal football for a long time had become a bit dull and uh, you must be a happy man right now. Yeah, I mean, we're in a very nice position. In a, I think in a position this season that not too many people expected Arsenal to be in. The football is good. There's plenty of uh, potential. There's a lot that this team can still do to develop and get better. And with 10 games to go to be pushing for a Champions League place, uh, you know, it, it's it's a very nice place to be, particularly after the the start of the season that Arsenal had, which was um, which was pretty bad. You know, uh, there were some issues with uh, the the teams who were playing Chelsea and Man City, of course, but it wasn't a promising start to the season. So to be where we are right now is is excellent. Well, I remember that Chelsea game in particular more so for Lukaku. It was his real arrival a return rather to English football as a rival at Chelsea and he completely bullied Arsenal and they were just fodder uh, to the point where even post-match Gary Neville and all the various pundits in Sky were saying well look you know it's only Arsenal let's not get too excited about Lukaku here wide open and seem to be offering not very much in attack so mm. quite a bit has changed since then is that personnel or tactics or attitude or a bit of everything what, what has happened this season Andrew? 
a bit of everything, I think. Certainly, the the team that played the first three games of the season was very different from the team that that uh, kicked off the next run because there was an international break after that. And Arsenal brought in players: uh, Aaron Ramsdale, Tommy Asu came in, Ben White, who was there, of course, uh, but Martin Odegaard came in as well before the end of the transfer window. So, personnel changes were obvious, um, and I think. It took a while to get going. It's still not perfect, but there was something that has built over the course of this season that the team has come together. Some players have gone. They've really streamlined the squad. It's a very, very tight squad right now um, with not a great deal of depth in, in some positions. But I think it's a group that is working together. The age profile of the squad was completely changed as well. When you think about some of the players that Arsenal had last season who frustrated or didn't do what Arsenal fans would have liked them to do, uh, David Luiz, William. And uh, Aubameyang, who was beginning maybe his little bit of a decline. And all of a sudden, you're looking at players like Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, Odegaard, Gabriel, Ben White. This this age profile is completely changing now as well. So it's taken time over the course of the season. There's been some bumps in the road. But since that, that start to the season, those three games, I think Arsenal have been really, really consistent. And that is why they're sitting in fourth place right now. For Arteta, I think he's proved a lot of people wrong, in part because he's a diminutive enough performer in the media, doesn't get too emotional, doesn't say anything terribly memorable, has a great stoicism, and so doesn't jump off the screen and impress as a, a figure to be reckoned with. I think where a lot of people looked at him and said, oh, there's real substance here as a manager, because obviously his playing career is was very fine but as a manager was when he took on Aubameyang and he won and the results immediately after winning against Aubameyang were good as well uh, that was where I remember first really sitting up and taking notice of Arteta and saying oh, this, this could be a bit different to previous Arsenal managers Well I'll tell you what he has been really consistent about what he wants from his players and he, he gave a really good interview when he first joined one of the last games that he had at Manchester City uh, as Pep Guardiola's assistant was a 3-0 win for Man City at the Emirates and it was just easy for City you know it was a terrible Arsenal performance City didn't have to work hard they just went through the motions and when he took over and everyone knew he was coming at that point when he took over he talked about something being missing he talked about a connection between the team and the fans being missing and he inherited a lot of problems as well um but he's he's been consistent in what he wants what he calls his non-negotiables the the buy into his methods his tactics the way what well, what he said is the way we live together as a team. And there have been some casualties along the way. It's not just Aubameyang. Uh, Matteo Ganduzi unceremoniously um, dropped and loaned out Mesut Ozil, one of the highest profile players in the world at that time. Mm. Again, something went on there. We don't know the details. It was an unpopular decision for many Arsenal fans because Ozil was still a bit of a hero to them, not to everyone, but but uh, he wasn't afraid to make those decisions. So that has been like a recurring theme. But of course, when you make those decisions, you've got to back them up with results and performances. And maybe that hasn't always been the case. With the Aubameyang thing this season, um, we've been better since he's gone. And that's not to downplay his quality as a player, what he brought to the club, his contributions. But certainly, 
Arteta made a decision, stuck by it. Aubameyang's having a great time in Barcelona. Arsenal are doing very well without him. Maybe we'll come to rue that lack of a striker between now and the end of the season. But this this idea that Arteta is, um, this is something new. He, he's been doing it ever since he arrived, literally paying players like Mustafi and Kalasinac and Socrates and, and Ozil as well, paying them to go away because he didn't want them around. So there's been that hard line to to some of the stuff that he's done. It sounds like he's methodically had to root out the bad apples and, and yeah, yeah. fix the culture one player at a time. So, so if you take the form of late, which again is very impressive by any standards. 10 Premier League games, seven wins or six in their last seven. They've scored 17 goals. They've kept five clean sheets in there as well. Their two losses were to Man City and Liverpool. And even at the weekend, having lost to Liverpool, that didn't derail them or, you know, stymie confidence to the effect that there was a hangover against Aston Villa. They rebounded straight away again. Traditionally, over the last decade, these may not have been qualities that we might have associated with Arsenal. What's so... Uh, for the neutral and I'm, I'm sure it's especially true for the fans of the team uh, w- what's so likeable now about Arsenal I mean these three whoever they may be on a given day in behind Lacazette uh, going mm. to town young players expressive players beautiful creative players uh, like this is this is getting back to what made Arsenal such a force 15-20 years ago yeah I mean that's the really exciting part is is the fact that in key positions we've strengthened the spine in a very considerable way so Ramsdale Ben White and Gabriel uh, as the defensive spine if you like mm. um 23 24 and 24 midfield is a bit different bit more experience with Thomas Partey Granit Xhaka but then ahead of that Martin Odegaard who's 23 uh Smithrow 20 Martinelli 20 Bakayo Saka 20 there's so much more to come from these players. There really is. Um, you know, Smith Rowe and Saka are in double figures for goals this season, which for two 20-year-olds is is absolutely fantastic. And I think that is where the real encouragement comes from because there are a couple of key positions at Arsenal right now that need to be addressed in the transfer market in the summer. Everybody knows what they are. The main one, of course, is, is striker. And if Arsenal can bring in a high-quality player in there, and you've got Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli, Smithrow behind an effective presence up front. I mean, where could they go at their age? You know, that that is the thing. There is potential in this team to get even better. And that, regardless of what happens, I think, between now and, and the end of the season, um, that, I think, is something that we, as Arsenal fans, can hang on to and think, OK, if we can do it with these guys at this age, when they become a bit more mature, more developed, more streetwise, more savvy, whatever you want to call it, when you've got that bit more experience, like the the sky is the limit for some of these guys. The Ramsdale mistake was a touch costly naturally against Liverpool. What kind of season has he had more generally, Andrew? Very good. He won people over. There was a lot of scepticism about him when he was being touted as a signing because people didn't really think goalkeeper was an issue for Arsenal. 24 million for a guy who's been relegated twice. Um, You know, there was a lot of scepticism, but he came in and won the fans over very quickly. He's been excellent. Um, His personality is huge. Even the mistake against Liverpool, I I don't think that will negatively affect him. We've seen him make a couple of errors, as goalkeepers do, but he's not one of those who immediately goes into a shell. He's, He's been really important in the way that Arsenal play this season as well, because with the ball at his feet, 
he's been superb. Short passing, long passing, clip balls into midfield, these kind of daisy cutters that he plays up the wing. The the variety of pass that he has in his locker is is I've never seen it from an Arsenal goalkeeper before. And it wasn't long ago we were dealing with Petr Cech and Bern Leno. Unai Emery came in and wanted Arsenal to play out from the back. And he wanted Petr Cech to do that. Petr Cech couldn't do it. Mm. He nearly scored an own goal in his, the first game against Man City. And, and we got Burned Leno. And Burned Leno felt like, wow, in in pure footballing terms, with the ball at his feet, this is a big upgrade. Ramsdale is next level again. So he, he has been absolutely superb as well. He's been a, an important part of this team. And I think there were scenes at the end of the Villa game where he was there, he was injured, couldn't play, but wanted to go along and was first over to congratulate Bernd Leno at the end. So when we talk about something that's growing, this connection between the team within the team itself and between the team and the fans, small things like that are, are part of what Arteta has tried to, to grow at the club. Mm. There were numerous occasions over the last couple of years where many of us would have thought, well, Jack will be at the door. It's just not quite working out. And yeah. he seems to have uh, redeemed himself somewhat. How's he playing to your eye? He, look, he's always going to be a quite de- uh, divisive figure among Arsenal fans because he's just got this track record, this history of crazy red cards and that, that mad incident against Crystal Palace. And there's it, he reminds me a little bit of Olivier Giroud in a sense, in that, He's very good at what he does, but he he was always a player that people are looking for an upgrade on. Giroud was a 20-goal-a-season striker, and Arsenal fans were going crazy because they wanted that that superstar up front. He's been good, I think, this season. He He's playing in the last couple of months in a more advanced role, further forward in midfield. So maybe some of the weaknesses that he has in his game where he's turned around, he's running back towards his own goal, he's trying to defend. That's not really his strength. Um, so he's been pushed forward. I think himself and Thomas Partey work very well together as a midfield duo. Um, it would be wrong to talk about Xhaka without talking about Partey, who's been uh, excellent in the last couple of months after you know, taking a while to settle in and deal with some injuries and everything else. So I, I do think Xhaka has benefited from Partey. But I also think Partey benefits from Xhaka as well. And the team, because it is so young, it does need does need a couple of men in there. You know what I mean? It needs those 28, 29-year-olds just to, to provide that bit of presence, that bit of authority, that bit of experience. And those two have been very good in, in recent weeks. Well, watching them a lot over the last decade, the team just didn't make sense all that often. There was a lot of chopping and changing. And increasingly... All the uh, studies in various sports point to cohesion as being one of the most important aspects of a successful team. And this feels like the first season in I don't know how long, Andrew, where most of us can reel off the likely Arsenal eleven, give or take our name or two, whichever of those three play behind Lacazette, for instance. But suddenly it makes sense. And as you said, there's a balance between the spine of the team and Partey and Jacka, and then the three kids in front doing their thing and Lacazette mm. hopefully chipping in with a goal. You just look at that and you say, OK, you can see how all of these pieces might work together. And it always looks so simple when it's done well and a team just makes sense. And I'm sure there were times over the last five, six years where you were looking at a mishmash and different teams every second week and wondering where is a, a strong 11 going to emerge out of here? 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think in part this is because there is a small squad right now, so there isn't a great deal that, that he can do. He's got players who are basically backup players for the first Eleven, and uh, you know, apart from the one from Martinelli, Smithrow, or or um, uh, Saka, who has to miss out if they're playing, um, uh, you know, three behind a striker. Apart from that, they're just backup players, so it does kind of pick itself. But sort of speaking about cohesion, I think another way we could look at it is strategy and what Arsenal have done in the transfer market last summer. It's probably the first time in a long time where there's been a definite strategy, where they went out and they bought players of a certain age to fit into a group, to grow, to develop, rather than this sort of firefighting approach to recruitment where they go, oh my God, what are we going to do? And you end up buying Shkodran Mustafi for £35 million on the last day of the transfer window, which nobody can turn around in hindsight and say, well, that was good planning, wasn't uh, wasn't it? You know, so there's been, I think, an acceptance at the very top that you have to have some kind of plan. And maybe you have to go through some difficult times and maybe you have to go through a difficult period with a, a young manager to be able to implement that plan. And I think that is something that Arsenal experienced last season. Arsenal finished eighth again, which wasn't really great. Um, it came off the back of a really poor um, period at the start of the season or midway through the season where they couldn't win a game yeah. for no money. Um but since then, I think things have been improving and consistently been improving in terms of the consistency and certainly the the recruitment that was done last summer will give Arsenal fans faith that this summer, regardless of whether Arsenal finish in the Champions League places or not at the end of this season, there's there'll be some faith that they can get it right again and, and take the team to a, a different level. Yeah, well, I think fans have a real patience in sticking with the manager once it's the right manager. And where impatience starts to creep in is when those suspicions arise that, well, we're wasting time here with the dud. And clearly the yeah. powers that be recognised in Arteta, this guy's worth sticking with. And so they've stuck with him and it's really borne fruit. Odegaard has been such a a joy to watch of late. I mean, every time you watch an Arsenal match, just his movement, five yards this way, five yards another way, he can unlock defences. And then when he does get the ball, boy, can he pick a pass and vision and has a bit of pace yeah. and he can finish and do it all. He's going to be a superstar. How do they swoop in for him? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody at Real Madrid is saying, how do we let this one go away? Uh, it's a question I've been asking myself. I'm very glad that nobody did. Uh, <laughs> because he's been, he's been brilliant. Oh. Um, I, I, I love watching him. I thought he was very good during the loan spell last season, but he did have some injury issues, some issues with consistency. But I saw enough during that period to know that he could bring something to this Arsenal team. And I, I it feels like he, you know, after joining Real Madrid at 15, he had some loan spells. He had a very good loan spell at Real Sociedad, for example. He feels it feels like he's at home now. He's mm. found a club where he's going to play for the next five or six years, hopefully more, um, where he can really develop and and be part of a young team. But I think in in some ways he's like a senior part of the young element of the team, if you like, because he's 23, 24. Um, He's had this period at Real Madrid. It didn't quite go as well as he would have liked, I'm sure. I'm sure when he joined there, he, he had visions of, you know, turning out at the Bernabeu every week and winning the Champions League or whatever it might be. And some people might say, well, coming to Arsenal at this point is a step down. But 
sometimes a club and a player don't always fit. And right now it feels like Odegaard and Arsenal are a great fit. He's been better than I thought he was going to be. Um, he's scoring goals. He's assisting. And I think one of the, the the things that people really like about him is he can combine the craft and the vision in the final third while also putting in the hard yards, not just defensively, but deeper in the midfield, connecting the play, keeping things ticking over with, with Xhaka, with Partey, moving the ball. He's just been fantastic, fantastic to watch. And he's a fun player. And Arsenal haven't had too many fun mm-hmm. players over the last little while. He's now feeling like he can do those little tricks and flicks and mm-hmm. and they're coming off. And it's fun to watch. You know, I think sometimes we forget that you need that little bit of artistry in football to to really connect with it. And, and he's certainly done that this season for yeah, Arsenal. Yeah, I heard uh, Liam Brady talking on Eamon Dunphy's podcast recently and he was saying Odegaard, in his opinion for a time, wasn't given the forward pass enough and now has really started doing that. And I mean, he certainly would have always had the ability to give a forward pass. Maybe it is that sense of increasingly feeling at home. And, you know, maybe for those three creative players or the four, if you want to throw in Martinelli as well, with no great hierarchy there you know there's no uh, Ronaldo saying well I'm going to obviously be the dominant force here I'll take the majority of the passes there's almost a freedom of expression as in well we're we're three four kids here we're all equals in a sense so we're all going to get in on the act there's no like I said dominant force subjugating the others to, to his every whim yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought about it like that. There is a sort of egalitarian nature to this this young team. And I think that's probably part of why they decided to, to go that way. Like they tried the quick fix thing so many times, Arsenal. They tried the, the grizzled veterans who could maybe drag you over the line, but it didn't work. It didn't work for Unai Emery. It didn't work when Mikel Arteta did it with, with David Luiz and Willian. Um, you know, there was some success, obviously, with the, the FA Cup. But if you're going to build something and if you're going to grow something, you know, you need you need players who are willing to to buy in, who can stay together, work together, live together. Um, and they're really enjoying it. You can see that they're enjoying yeah. it. And, and that's evident in the way that they play and and the results that Arsenal are, are, are churning out right now. Just got to keep them together for the next 10 years when bidders come in. That's it. Easy though, right? Yeah. That's easy. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, great to catch up and check in and, and let's see what happens over the next number of games. The fixture list for Arsenal isn't devastatingly grim, so there are odds on favour to make Champions League at this stage. Andrew Mangan of Arsblog. Thanks so much, Andrew. Much appreciated. Cheers, Joe. Talk to you soon. Thanks. And our football show coverage is brought to you by Sky. All the football you love in one place across Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports. The Arsenal fixture list, by the way, is Crystal Palace away... Then they have Brighton at home. Then they have Southampton away. You would think good opportunities there. Then it's Chelsea at Stamford Bridge. They have Manchester United coming to the Emirates. They're away to West Ham. Then they have Leeds at home. They have Newcastle away. Then they have Everton at home. And at some stage, date to be confirmed, the game was postponed. They'll play Spurs away. So that's the Arsenal uh, fixtures for the remainder of the season. Not horrific by any means. And they were eighth last season, eighth the season before, and suddenly looking at fourth now.